0: So I was trying to think of, you know, what's a different creative way to cook and have a nice hot meal without bringing a stove. And through one thought process or another, I came up with, you know what, why don't I just use the hot spray?
1: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we talk to athletes, adventurers, and business owners from around the world of adventure sports. Whether you're climbing Mount Everest, starting a bike shop, Hey folks, this is Mason. I am not the host today. This one is going back to 2017. Kurt is hosting, and he is interviewing Michelle Shea, and they are talking about food on your adventure, how to make really good meals while out on your adventure, whatever you're doing. Um, I, I thought about doing an updated version, but you don't want to learn how to make your backcountry meals from me because... I'm the type of person to find food on the trail and eat that, even if it's been bitten into. I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm not great. My I'll, I'll tell you, my favorite, strangely enough, it's weird, I know, but my favorite thing to eat when out on a, a trip, I feel like it's a treat, is when I get to make ramen noodles, mashed potatoes, instant mashed potatoes, that is, and uh, a can of tuna. And I mix it all together and maybe a packet of mustard or something. (laughs) Doesn't that sound awful? I remember I made it one time at home and I, I, my, my wife was there. She thought I was, she's like, who the heck did I marry? Who is this person? I need to get out of here. (laughs) Thankfully I can cook pretty well at home besides that time. But so I decided not to do an update on this and and leave it up to the professionals and so Michelle does a great job, talks about just all kinds of neat tricks and recipes to to help make the backcountry and your next adventure a little more, I don't know, enjoyable. But I will say, something about not indulging yourself on an adventure it can be cleansing as well. We, we talked to a guy recently that all he eats is peanut butter and ramen. That that episode's coming out soon. And all he eats is peanut butter and ramen noodles for like 50 days. And uh, that just sounds terrible, honestly. But he says it's it, it's an exercise of discipline. Yeah, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to keep eating ramen noodles with mashed potatoes and tuna. I, I don't want to keep abusing myself like that. So I need to start learning some some better habits with that. Anyway, speaking of which, today's episode is sponsored by Peak Refuel, which is quite literally the opposite of the recipe I just told you. Uh, it is fantastic food. It is the best meal I've ever had in the backcountry. You can get 20% off by using the code ASP20. Y'all, give it a shot. All right, patrons, thank you. We had a couple new patrons this week. We really appreciate it. Huge help. Um, If you'd like to become one, details are in the show notes. All right, let's get into this.
2: Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Boy, am I excited about our guest today. I know over the years, if you are like me, you've experienced the same thing, where you go into the backcountry somewhere and you start eating dehydrated foods or something and over time, you're just like, this just really isn't cutting it, and you're looking for the solution for outdoors cooking that feels good and tastes good and is light enough to carry in the whole nine yards. So today I have Michelle Shea with us, and Michelle um started out growing up in San Diego as a beach girl, but she fell in love with snowboarding, which took her through Colorado, and she's currently at Lake Tahoe. And uh, she also spent some time in New Zealand, and all of this led to her experiencing more and more of the outdoors, and that led on to her developing a business on Adventure Dining. And she says, cooking and nutrition for people in the outdoors, being able to eat real food on the trail, so... I'm looking forward to this. I think it's something that needs to be addressed, and I'm really excited to learn from Michelle. So Michelle, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: So Michelle and I met at Outdoor Retailer. Just very briefly, and I'm excited to get more information from her about her new business. Adventurediningguide.com is where you can learn more about her business. And she's putting together all sorts of information that's going to go onto television and onto web-based shows as well about this outdoor cooking. So she is the expert that we're going to talk today. But before we dive into all of that, Michelle, I want to hear about your snowboarding a little bit. So tell us the story about how you got started snowboarding and, and where it led you.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, I grew up at the beach and just Through one channel or another, I ended up going to the mountains, and the first time I went, I fell in love. I was hooked, and instantly, I just wanted to go as much as I possibly could. So my uh, last semester at college, I ended up going to Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, and my whole thought process behind this was, where can I go in the world that has snow right now, where I can go to school and keep pursuing this passion? So sure enough, I went out to New Zealand, and I met some wonderful people. We went up to the mountains every weekend, and it was just nonstop from there. (laughs)
2: So Michelle, you ended up snowboarding in a lot of different places. So did you start snowboarding then in the mountains in California or in New Zealand?
0: Uh, In California, yep. So I grew up near Big Bear. I went up to Big Bear a couple times a year when I was younger and uh, spent a lot of time in Mammoth when I was in college. I was on the San Diego State snowboarding team. Then I got into some competitive snowboarding and that really just kind of took me to the next level. And at that point, I would say that it actually turned into a full-blown addiction was probably the best way to explain it. Um, I had to go as much as possible. And, uh, you know, when you're doing a sport as much as I was, you know, you kind of are continually pushing yourself and getting to the next level and trying to get to bigger and better. And that eventually brought me into the backcountry. And um, spending time in the backcountry through snowboarding with splitboarding and snowshoeing and whatever I could to get to bigger peaks and bigger mountains, it really opened my eyes to this new world of spending time away from civilization and that's really what I learned was that, you know, when I'm in the middle of nowhere, I have to be prepared. And this preparation is something that's so different than spending time in a ski resort. So it's a different mentality. And it really just opened my eyes to the beauty of the wilderness and how much you really need to take everything seriously and be prepared.
2: You you ended up in New Zealand first or was it Colorado first? I mean, how did that work out?
0: Yeah, so I went... Um, from San Diego to New Zealand to Mammoth to Colorado to Lake Tahoe with a lot of New Zealand and Argentine trips in the mix of uh, our opposite seasons. So it was just basically about five years of an endless winter.
2: I was <laughs> oh, doing everything
0: <laughs> everything I could to just keep riding.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. So are you still crazy about snowboarding now?
0: I absolutely am. I, I live in Lake Tahoe and you know this is such a great place because I really have the best of both worlds here. I have wonderful mountains for the winter time, and we have so much snow right now. It's just unfathomable. And, um, you know, in the summertime, it just gives us that great option of all these other outdoor activities. So really, this sparked my thinking about Adventure Dining Guide, because I'm in the mecca of outdoors people right now. You know, I have friends from every different sport and activity, being it skiing or climbing or backpacking, mountain biking, you know, whatever time of the year. There's people outdoors being active, and so I'm able to talk to them about what they do and what they like to cook, and it just inspires me. So this is such a great place for me to be, and I'm so happy to be here.
2: Oh, that's very cool. So I want to hear all about the food in a couple of minutes, but I need to drill a little deeper on the snowboarding. A lot of people (laughs) snowboard, right, Michelle? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But let's not assume that everybody does. There are an awful lot of listeners out there who never have, and they're kind of like, oh, that looks like that might be fun. So I'm just going to ask, why (laughs) snowboard?
0: You know, honestly, it's just one of the most wonderful and freeing feelings, and I've had friends that, you know, you said, you never really get a great powder day until you're on a snowboard. (laughs) I am not big of a skier, so I can't really compare it to it, but that's it. It's just, it's addicting, and it's this feeling of floating and control, and I love that it's not a team sport. That's something that really drew me to it, because I grew up playing a lot of team sports, so it's just that individual expression, and it's an art form in certain ways that you can really just go out and... Either if you're having a bad day and you need to get out some frustration and some emotion, I go really fast and ride really hard. Or if I'm with a lot of my friends and we're a little bit more of a creative expression, then we could go out and find ways to creatively attack different parts of the mountain. And honestly, it's just, it's a social event. You know, you could do it by yourself. You could do it with friends and be social, but it's just a wonderful sport. And there's a lot of great ways to start nowadays. You know, there's a lot of the Learn to Ride programs. Burton does some cool stuff. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of resources online. So even if you do want to get started in this sport, you know, you're not alone. There's great teachers. There's great ways to get out there and to enjoy the winter.
2: Well, I have to confess, Michelle, I love snowboarding. <laughs> but I haven't done yeah. much of it. And I, I told my kids that they absolutely should learn how to snowboard after they were excellent on skis.
0: <laughs> and, my parents made to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did
2: that because I always looked at the snowboard as a little bit limiting in some ways. I thought, you know, if my kids want a backcountry ski, you can carry a board in, but it's hard to ride the board in, right? Often yeah, you can you ride could. the board out. But
0: and it's it's funny that you say that because really the backcountry culture has changed so much in the last five years. Splitboarding is huge now. So that's really opened a lot of doors to people who were traditionally limited just because they didn't have the skins and the, the skis that you're talking about. So there's big changes, there's big opportunities, and it's just it's such a great sport. that you know, If you ever want to talk more, I can talk all day about snowboarding. Give
2: me a call, <laughs> give me an email. <laughs> well, splitboarding certainly <laughs> opened up the doors, and that's a pretty late... Yeah. Uh, uh, development. I mean, splitboarding hasn't been around all that long. When do you think it hit the market?
0: You know, it has in a lot of different retrospects, but it really, I would say, started to get popular in the masses about five years ago and there's a lot of great athletes that really opened the doors to this you know jeremy jones being one of them he's a tahoe guy and just his uh his series of movies the deeper steeper and further i believe are the three it kind of showed people that you didn't just have to do these extreme heli lines you know you could just strap on a board go into the middle of nowhere and find great untouched turning. And there's a lot of other companies out there that have been making wonderful boards. I'm a huge Never Summer fan. I love, love, love my Never Summer split board and all their boards. So, you know, there's tons of great opportunities to find the gear you need to get out there. And there's a lot of great avalanche classes too, which is huge because if you're going to spend the time away from any resort, you got to be prepared. You got to know what you're doing. And if you screw up, then it's. Not a very good situation. So be prepared and take classes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Michelle at Outdoor Retailer, I got to uh, put on an avalanche pack for the airbag. And oh, nice. Yep. I got to fire the thing off and see what it was like for that to go off around your head, you know. And
0: yeah, I have one of those. They're great.
2: Oh, I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. In my time in the backcountry, I just avoid avalanche terrain as much as I can. That means I'm yep. avoiding a lot of the fun I could have had, you know, if I had a little bit better equipment and, and what have you. So. Anyway. You know what
0: though? That's smart and safe. And when it comes to that sort of conditions, it's just, it's so much better to be safe than sorry. And I cannot ever, ever, ever stress enough that if you're not prepared, if you don't know what you're doing, don't do it. You know, it's not something you can just grab a pack and throw on and go in the middle of nowhere. You have to be prepared. And I think that's what split boarding has done is it's made more terrain accessible, but it's also increased a lot of people's avalanche susceptibility. So just be careful. That's the the number one thing I could say about that.
2: Thank you for saying that for me. On many shows when we've been talking about skiing in the backcountry, I was the one that had to give that speech. So (laughs) I appreciate that. And I always do, Michelle. You live in Colorado. You've heard all the news reports. People come here every year, and they jump into something that they shouldn't, not knowing. And it's not because they're stupid. It's just because they don't know, and they get hurt. So anyway, I couldn't agree more. Learn about avalanche safety. It's worth it. And when you do, don't get cocky because actually the people that tend to get hurt in avalanches are often the ones that have more training. The training alone is not enough to save you. Exactly. So, you it's know, just
0: it's this unpredictable force of nature. So
2: yeah, it really be aware. is. Well, I I really like the idea of the splitboarding, and I like it that you can give us a little bit of uh, an intro into that because it really is a new development. I mean, you said yeah, I got big in the last five years or so. So I was teaching my kids to ski even before that, but uh-huh. splitboarding the idea that I could go into the backcountry on a splitboard and then snap it together and snowboard out that really is appealing.
0: It's awesome, and you know what, even. If you don't want to shell out all the money to buy a kit, because it can be pretty expensive, there's some at-home kits that you can take a table saw and use an old board and put something together. So there's opportunities out there to, to experiment.
2: So you snowboarded competitively. I did. Tell us about that.
0: Absolutely. Um, I kind of did a big range. I was never the best at it, but it's something that gave me the opportunity to travel a lot, to meet a lot of great people, and to improve in my sport and I, I realized through competitive snowboarding that personally I just don't have that competitive spirit in me. I don't care. I'd rather just go out on the hill and have fun with and ride. But um I did some Burton opens, I did big mountain stuff, a lot of rail jams, kind of a little bit of everything. And it's it's interesting because you know, I feel like a lot of people that are coming up in their sport nowadays, be it skiing and snowboarding or you know, whatever, that's just, they're so focused on one type of competition, slope slyle or half pipe or big mountain that you kind of miss the whole variety of the sport. And I was more interested in just doing a little bit of everything. So <laughs> I guess a jack of many trades would probably be the best way to put it.
2: Well, that's a lot of fun, too. Well, I think snowboarding is wonderful. I really do. And I have to say, I'm Thank primarily you. a skier, but I'm not one of these skiers who, who looks down on snowboarders. And hopefully, you know, snowboarders aren't looking down on skiers. We do ride the the slopes different ways, but it's all fun and it's all great. So Absolutely. thanks for kind of you sharing know, that with us.
0: Of course. And, you know, just a quick tip on that is, like you said, you know, everybody shares the mountain together and there's no need to have all that animosity. It's just, you know, everybody's out pretty much doing the same thing, but with a little variation variation to it so it's just respect giving respect gets respect
2: oh absolutely you bet well let's talk about how all of this led you into cooking so snowboarding Mm -hmm. and cooking most people wouldn't get the connection there so explain how that happened
0: (laughs) absolutely um you know, it really started just from, believe it or not, being in a lodge and watching a bunch of Japanese snowboarders make lunch. And when I was in New Zealand, because a lot of the opposite season people would travel down to New Zealand and we'd get big group of Japanese people and Canadians and Americans. So, I mean, we, uh, Europeans, people from all over the world. But it was amazing because a lot of my friends from Japan, they travel in these really tight knit groups and they would come in for lunch and they would use one teeny tiny pot. And they would cook tea and soup. I mean, they would feed 10 people off of this one little pot. And I just watched in envy going, Oh my goodness. I'm eating a granola bar and you guys have this like three course meal that you made using barely anything. And that really just sparked my primitive thinking about, all right, there has to be a better way. And this, the simplicity to it was, you know, taking uh, basic ingredients, a hot item to heat them up and just making awesome lunches. So that kind of sparked my thinking about how do I, how do I make this better? And then just through spending time in the outdoors with various friends and people, especially people from all over the world, I've got the opportunity to see how other cultures interact and eat. And, you know, food has such a great way of bringing people together, just like spending time in the outdoors does that, you know, when you have a meal with somebody, it's really a great opportunity to just get to know them. And having an adventure is the same thing. So I kind of wanted to take these two and just marry them together. And that's how adventure dining Geek really came about.
2: Oh, well, that's fun. You know, I, I shared briefly in the introduction that I've I found this to be a major need. And the reason is because, I you know, backpacking food, dehydrated food, freeze-dried foods, they're great. They have their place, and I I highly support the companies that are creating that stuff for us. But that said, I can't eat it day after day after day after day after day on the mm-hmm. extended trips. I'm like, oh, I've got to have some real food here. It's just something about it for me makes me want to uh, to eat something that's more like what I would have at home. Mm-hmm. And so the question, and it, it's kind of the $1,000 question, Is how can we take real food on our adventures, whether that's backpacking or mountain biking or camping or, or, you know, different types of treks or expeditions. It doesn't matter. We all need to eat, but how can we take that food in without carrying a lot of excess weight and then enjoy more of the home cooked meal when we're remote like that?
0: Absolutely. And that's such a great question that, you know, really I get to talk to people a lot about that because it is a common concern. And I'm with you. Dehydrated meals are great, but it does get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm ready for something different. And they can get really expensive too. And be careful with the labels because some dehydrated meals really don't have very good nutrition. So my my planning process for these trips, it's four stages. And really let, what I like to focus on is bringing foods that support your journey, that are nutritious, and that you know are things that you would normally like to eat. And I think that's a big thing to take into consideration too, is that you don't want to mix up your diet too much because your body is already going through a lot. When you're traveling in the outdoors, you're more susceptible to injuries, to getting sick, just to mental and physical exhaustion. So you want to have the right foods that support this. And bringing foods that are nutrition-based will really, really help support your body so you have a more successful journey. And uh, going on that line, my process is one storage requirement. The first thing that I look at when I'm planning for a backcountry adventure is what kind of storage am I using? Do I have refrigeration? Do I have a cooler? Do I have a bear box? Do I have a really small pack? I mean, what are what do I need as far as my storage goes? And then after I kind of get that figured out, that really helps me break down the foods that I can bring with me. So the next phase is I look at the duration of the journey. And with that, you know, it, again, it really cuts down the amount of foods I have because this is really where longevity and storage and, you know, maybe you need dehydrated things. All of these length of the food survival comes into play. And then the third, I look at my cooking options. Now, am I going to be making a fire? Do I have a stove? Do I need extra fuel? Of all the little details that go into preparing and making this food? Or am I going stoveless again? tons of options, but finding the one that fits best for you and your journey helps you go through this process. And the fourth one is just your personal style. And the best thing I can say about that is stay true to yourself. If you like eating a certain way at home, try and bring that into the backcountry. You know, reward yourself with foods that you really like to eat. Um, if you don't like cooking at home, if you don't like making big meals, don't plan on bringing big meals on the trail because chances are you're going to be tired and not want to do extra work. So just stay true to yourself. And that's kind of the the basic process.
1: I'm sure you have tried some freeze dried and dehydrated meals before, but I promise you, you've never had anything close to as good as peak refuel. Uh, They make freeze-dried meals, which is different than dehydrated. It takes way less water to cook. It cooks a lot faster, and they cook the meals before they put everything together. A lot of companies just throw all the ingredients in there, and when you cook it, it's the first time it's ever been cooked. With them, all the flavors have cooked together. It's super tasty, and you can get 20% off by going to peakrefuel.com and using the code at checkout ASP20. Seriously, give them a shot for whatever adventures that you have planned this year. So I like your four steps.
2: They were storage requirements, duration of the journey, um, how you're going to cook, what your cooking options are going to be, and then your personal style, staying true to yourself, how does this translate into getting the right food and going?
0: So kind of after looking at these four steps, it'll give you a better idea of the type of food you need. Um, so for example, if you're looking at a small container, like a bear box, you know, and you're going to be out in the backcountry for three or four days and you're cooking with, let's say, a jet boil, you know, that already tells me that, okay, I need foods that are light, that pack small, that don't take up a lot of space that lasts without refrigeration and heat quickly in that type of stove so instantly looking at these can like three Three considerations really gives me a better idea of the type of foods I need. So from there, I can go to the store and say, okay, you know, I have this much space. I need some noodles. I need, and then from there, we can start looking at our nutrition requirements. You know, we want carbs, we want fats, we want salts, we want things that will supplement our body. And there's a lot of different styles when it comes to trail nutrition. But again, you know, stay true to yourself. So kind of stick to the sort of diet that you like to eat at home. So then you're not putting your body through tons of shock when you're out in the backcountry. You're eating the same similar type of foods but with real foods that translate into backcountry
2: okay and here's the tough question what about weight (laughs) what about weight
0: oh yeah weight is huge you can mean that's a big big part of it and you know there's lots of options when it comes to weight but dehydrated is a good way to go for a lot of people um that's most people swear by it but you know it again it kind of just has to fit your style and your cooking and you know if you have a weight Uh, Excuse me. If you have weight concerns, then you need to instantly start thinking about light foods and, you know, powders and things that have big flavors but don't weigh a lot. You know, there's a lot of different options. And believe it or not, one of my favorite places to go is Asian supermarkets. I love Asian supermarkets because they are just packed with things that you can't find at regular supermarkets. They have tons of dehydrated options, tons of powdered options, uh, lots of different really lightweight noodles and rices, and it's really inexpensive.
2: Would you describe for us, and you don't have to give us any deep, dark secrets, but describe for us a recipe that you really like to take, let's say backpacking.
0: Okay. Um... Yeah, actually, one of my favorites I came up with, and I think I'm thinking of because I was just talking about Asian stores, is a curry noodle bowl. And it's a dehydrated meal that I made that you don't need a dehydrator. And the awesome thing about this is that you can eat it cold or heat it up. So you have all this option and it's great any time of the year, but it's, it's simple. It's just some lightweight rice noodles and it's extremely lightweight by the way, but it's lightweight rice noodles. um, Some miso powder that you can just get at one of those uh, miso soups. It has some curry, some coconut powder, garlic salts, and just really, really light, basic seaweed. And that's about it, and then you just add water. You can either heat it up again, or just add some cold water. Let the noodles soak, and it reconstitute itself. And it's extremely lightweight. So, kind of th- finding things that work in these situations, it it helps you prepare. And this is something that I make. I have tons of little baggies of these noodles. So, if on hand, I'm just having to go out on a journey, I've got them ready to go. So. You know, It's not this big preparation that a lot of people get overwhelmed with when it comes to these trips. It's stuff that you can have, and you can eat it at home, or you could take them in the backcountry with you.
2: Okay, so if people want to know more about this sort of approach to wilderness cooking, where, huh? where can they get more information?
0: We're, oh, absolutely, dot adventurediningguide.com. I've got tons of great recipes on there. There's some stuff about nutrition in the backcountry. I'm an average nutritionist, um, just amateur, but I absolutely love learning about different Types of foods and each month, you know, I try and bring different ideas and recipes, things that you'd find at home in a normal setting into the backcountry. For example, seaweed. Seaweed is lightweight. It's packed with nutrients. It's basically a great substitute for bringing vegetables and it's super easy to carry. You can eat it dry. You can throw it in soups. There's so many options. So. There's tons of fun things like that, and I like to explore these things on the AdventureDiningGuide.com site.
2: AdventureDiningGuide.com, and I'm on there right now. I see that you broke recipes up by activity, which is pretty cool. So you can click on camping and get camping-friendly recipes, trail sports, snow sports, water sports, hunting and angling, and then you have other divisions like types of food, Latin, Mediterranean, Um, and then you have it broken up by meal, lunch, breakfast, dinner. So there's, holy cow, there's a lot of information on here.
0: I I try to be thorough but you know there's just there's so many neat things about food and food relates to every activity age and ability so I really wanted to just keep it broad so everybody can come on find something that fits their needs and go out and explore and that's really just my whole goal with this is to get more people outdoors to make the outdoor experience approachable and to not feel overwhelmed when it comes to planning and packing, you know, I think that scares a lot of people away from spending time in the wilderness. So if you know what you're looking for you know how to prepare for it and you have good food, you're going to have a great time or it'll help you have a great time.
2: <laughs> well, let me ask you for some advice then. Of course. This last summer, uh, my two of my boys and I took a through hike of the Holy Cross wilderness area. And there's an episode, I think on our show about it. So people could go find out more information there. But my goal was for none of us to lose weight. And the reason is because we're tall, skinny fellows. We don't need to mm-hmm. lose weight. <laughs> right. But Absolutely. we also had to carry nine days of food. There was no resupply. Yep. Add to that. That the area where we went didn't have trails. So it wasn't like there was a trail and we would opt to go off trail to, to experience something. There were not trails. It was an area that was just so remote. People don't go there. And so. Sounds that, awesome. Well, it was a, it was a blast, but here's the food yeah. part of that, right? Mm-hmm. It always took us about five more hours to get to our destination than we planned because we're off trail. And that means more exhaustion because we're off trail. Longer mm-hmm. days because we're off trail. Less time in camp because we're off trail. You get the point here. Yep. And so we took, because we were concerned about this, we took dehydrated foods with us and where it says, you know, it was two servings, so we go, oh no, no, that's one serving for sure. So we took double the food that it said on the package and then... We also took things like peanut butter mixed with butter, things that were calorie dense. We even took, each of us carried a a jug of olive oil just so when we made our dehydrated food, we could pour olive oil into it to get more calories because it's it's calorie dense and very healthy. And so we did all of those things and nine days later, we had all lost about 10 pounds each. (laughs) So what do we do? What's your advice?
0: (laughs) You know, I think the word that you really hit on there is calorie dense. And, you know, in in situations like that, it's hard because you're burning so many calories per day that it's tough to keep up on your body's needs. I mean, especially if you're going off trail and doing all this extra work and exertion. I think the most important thing for situations like that is snacks. Really, you need to keep up with your body's metabolism. to throw snacks that are extremely caloric dense in every pocket, so every time you stop, you're keeping up with your calories. And a great example of this is um, I talked with Trauma, who is a long-distance thru-hiker, And he lives in Truckee, so he was explaining his journey when him and his uh, co-hiker hiked the entire Pacific Crest Trail in the wintertime. And their story is phenomenal. If you ever get a chance to check it out, it's Justin Lichter and Sean Forey. And this their story is awesome. But that was basically their main concern is that, you know, they're in the wintertime, they're burning so many calories, just A from walking and B from the cold that they had to constantly keep up with this need. So they would get high caloric, just dense foods, keep them in their pockets. And every single time they stop, just eat, even if they're not hungry, just so their body is constantly getting calories. And like you said, you know, there's oils, there's peanut butters, there's lots of great foods that you can put in small containers that pack really well, that pack really Light that still have great nutrition, especially, especially with those oils. You know, you're getting some great omegas, you can get things with antioxidants. So it helps your blood flow and keeps up with all the free radicals. And again, and then again, you know, you're helping your body get all the calories it needs.
2: Well, I can see it would be even more challenging in the wintertime. That would be tough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm kind of at the point, Michelle, where I'm starting to think I'm willing to carry extra weight to have the food that I know is going to do me right on the trail. And got just got to be a happy medium somewhere though. But I want to be able to take some of your recipes that you have here and uh, try to s- kind of strike the balance between weight and nutrition and calories so that we can eat better.
0: Definitely. And like you said, you know, it, it is a balance. And the hard thing with eating in the outdoors is there's no one right way that works for everybody. Every journey, every weather, every cooking style every, you know, storage style, it's different.
2: Well, when I met you in OR, Michelle, I handed you a 180 flame because I thought it went along with your your recipes and your, your adventure dining guide. I'm just curious what your response is to it so far. You haven't had much time to play with it, I know, but so far, what do you think?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I took it out and I set it up and it, it was really, really easy to put together, which was awesome. Um, the whole functionality of it, I really, really liked it. And I could see it being used in a lot of different applications, which was exciting because, you know, especially for backpacking, being in the middle of nowhere and heavily wooded areas. It's just awesome. And it was really sturdy, which I was impressed about too. I could see putting, a, even if you know, you're know you in those situations where maybe you have a lightweight pot or you have a heavier pot, if you're not just backpacking, like at a camping situation too, it has that functionality to it, which I thought was really neat. I'm, I'm very excited to play with it some more in the future. As soon as we get rid of some of the snow.
2: Play with it a little bit, but then contact us and I'll see to it that you get a 180 stove and that's... It's a larger version. It's still lightweight. It's just ten point four ounces. But um the stove is big enough you can grill on it as well.
0: Awesome. So that's a great idea. Yeah. And you know, I I like too that it's something that I could use as a backup, for example, if I'm car camping or, you know, going somewhere where I'm not carrying it, but I just need to have a backup stove in case like a propane stove isn't working or you know, things just go wrong and I like to be prepared. So I see that as an awesome opportunity to either use that as my first stove or a backup stove.
2: Oh yeah. The other thing that we really enjoyed about it on our through hike, we took a 180 stove with us, but we could, if we wanted to, in the evening, sit around and feed twigs into the stove and not worry about burning too much fuel. So that allowed us to cook things we wouldn't have cooked otherwise. It allowed us to just sit around and enjoy the fire and that sort of thing. So, you know, if you're carrying your fuel in, then you're going to be pretty careful about how much of that fuel you're using up. And Absolutely. Uh, with yep. natural fuels, it's all around you. So it kind of opens up some, some options you wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Especially on that nine day through hike. I mean, you probably would have burned through a lot of canisters of fuel. So <laughs> that way it just even lightens your pack a little bit more.
2: You know, it's kind of funny. We took some uh, alcohol stoves as well and a little bit of alcohol and we thought, okay. There are going to be instances where we might want to use that. The crazy part about it is one evening it had been raining and everything was wet and it was really late. And another storm was headed in, so we wanted to get under our tarps really fast. Sure. So we grabbed the alcohol burners thinking this should be the fast way, right? Holy cow, it was not. It did not work. Really? We struggled and struggled and struggled and couldn't even get our water to boil. We went through almost all of our fuel that we had brought on the trip trying to boil enough water just for the three of us to hydrate our food.
0: Wow. Well, just and goes to show you, it's good to have backups.
2: Yeah. So the next morning, it had rained all night. Everything was soaked to the bone. And I said, forget this. I'm going to use my skills and do my wood stove. You know, And with the natural wood stove, I had a fire going faster. We boiled water faster. We didn't have any issues. If you know how to cook with with wet wood, then it wasn't any problem. And then in the end, I thought I wouldn't even bring the alcohol next time. It wasn't worth it.
0: Do you ever have a problem with fire ban areas?
2: That That is something that people need to be aware of. And there are some areas where fire bans are more or less constant. But most of the time, the fire bans are only if there's a dry season. So like in Colorado, there will be a few weeks in the summer where some areas would say don't use it. But they have different regulations in different places, so it's worthwhile to find out. You know, we also sell an ash pan, and you can also uh, put another sidewall in place. And I don't want to go on about the stoves, but that makes it a fully <laughs> enclosed cooking surface, so it meets a lot of the requirements for some fire bans, not all fire bands. So you do have to be aware of it. There are times where I won't, you know, I won't take a a natural fuel stove into the woods. Do you cook over campfires?
0: I do, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I like to do all sorts of activities outdoors. So I'm definitely not limited myself to one style of cooking and campfires, Dutch ovens, all the above. It's its great. And it's a very social setting too because there's usually a lot of people that come around the fire and there's so many fun things that you can make. So absolutely, yes, I do.
2: So tell us about this um, Adventure Dining Guide and this TV opportunity that you're having here.
0: Absolutely. So I'm teaming up with Emerging Sports TV, which is part of the CBS Sports Network. And we're going to be doing seven branded features this year and that's part of seven episodes that are going to be airing on CBS Sports. In addition, we're also teaming up with a couple different media platforms, uh, Unreal Me, um, And the second one is over the top channel. And these are both subscription channels that are shown through different media devices. So it's neat. There's a a lot of content that we're working on building right now and a lot of different opportunities to get out to a larger audience. And, you know, the neat thing about food and spending time in the wilderness is that a lot of people can relate to it. So even if you're not an extreme athlete, even if you're just a weekend warrior. Everybody has that constant need to eat and that interest in food. And I think with this foodie culture that's coming up, a lot more people are starting to appreciate the whole cooking and nutrition side of food. So it's exciting.
2: Oh, that's, that's great. Congratulations. Thank so you so much. That could not have been easy. To get that lined up. Do you have any hints for people that are interested in trying to connect with uh, the television industry?
0: You know, honestly, just keep knocking on doors. That's all I've been doing for the past year is just talking to as many people as I can and trying to get the word out there. And eventually the right person came around and they said, I love what you're doing. Let's, let's get on it. So just keep at it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a very general tip, but you know, the more content that you have and the more that you really work on finding things that people can relate to, the more reception that you're going to get and it's going to be easier to get to a larger audience.
2: Yeah, good words. So how about another recipe?
0: Ooh, um, you know, what are are you in the mood for?
2: Mediterranean. I'm I'm on your site, so this is a test. Okay. I I have the cheat sheet right in front of me. (laughs)
0: Meditation style. I've got so many fun things. Um, Couscous, it's so easy. And this is kind of like the outdoorsy person's go-to, I feel, that a lot of people I talk to, couscous recipes, because all you have to do is just boil water, add whatever flavoring you'd like, and then just let the pasta sit in it. And that's all couscous is. It's just little teeny bits of pasta that cook in five minutes. So it's so easy. It saves a lot of fuel. And you can add tons of bold flavors and lots of awesome ingredients. So that's kind of my base. I'll start with couscous and olive oil then add in you know cheeses and salamis whatever i have with me and just mix it all in a big pot and serve it and again you know each ingredient kind of comes down to how much time i have the length there's uh, shelf life how much time i'm spending in the back country and how many people i'm feeding but i just i love making couscous especially
2: for big groups oh, yeah that sounds like a good one
1: time for a quick message break so you know the show is brought to you by Camp Crate. They specialize in self-guided, pre-planned, all-inclusive backpacking adventures, as well as trip advice and as well as camping gear rental. So if you're in need of any of that stuff, reach out to them at campcrate.net. Very helpful and very knowledgeable. It's a great way to try backpacking for the first time or to scroll through their list of itineraries if you need some ideas on where to go. They will literally send you all your gear, your food, permits, coffee even, in a box to your front door. Use it for your trip. When you're done, return it with the pre-printed included return label. It's that easy. It makes backpacking and getting into the backcountry very approachable, very simple. Give them a shot. Now back to the episode
2: I'm gluten-free. Okay. And I have to throw the caveat out there. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you gluten-free weenies. I get it. I get it. I understand. A lot of people do gluten-free because they think it's a good health option, and I think that they're right. But I'm gluten-free for medical reasons. So for me, it's pretty serious. Definitely. What There's gluten-free free options people. do I have?
0: Yeah, you know what? Actually, rice, that's awesome is rice comes in and rice noodles. So you can make soups with it. You can make pastas. I highly recommend, again, going to an Asian supermarket because they have whole wheat. They have regular rices and it's just kind of a good place to start and find a dish that works for you. And even in that situation, you know, you can grab some miso paste or powder, um, add some dried vegetables, some dehydrated jerkies, whatever you want, throw it all in a pot with some rice noodles. It's gluten-free and it's going to be great flavors. And yeah, it's just, that's what it, I know there's a lot of people that are kind of in that same boat and I do get a lot of people talk
2: to me about gluten-free recipes. So
0: there's tons of options. And I think that, you know, starting with rice is a good way to go.
2: Cool. So a rice base and build on that with what you have.
0: Definitely. Yep. Cause you definitely need those carbohydrates. I think that's a big thing in a lot of gluten-free diets that people omit. But when you're exercising that much, your body is burning through so many calories that you need those simple carbohydrates for that quick energy and the complex carbohydrates for that long energy. So those are your whole wheats and your uh, flour bases. So, I mean, that's something that if you don't have that. You're missing that big structure of your backcountry nutrition. So throw in the whole wheat rice noodles or the, you know, regular rice and then you'll get that needed complex carbohydrates and super carbohydrates.
2: Well, here's a question for you and this might, yep. might really be a curveball. So because I live in Colorado and we backpack at altitude a lot, the water doesn't boil very hot. Nope. So any advice about how to cook at altitude when your water just doesn't get hot enough to do what it would at sea level?
0: You know, that is another good one. And um, it is it is a common problem, and a lot of people I do talk to have that same issue. And, you know, there's a lot of options, and one of them, you can go stealthless And believe it or not, but, you know, if you have ways of using your water for drinking purposes where you don't need to boil it down, it's a good option. And that way you don't have to worry about the fuel not working right or the stove not working properly because that is a big problem when you're at high altitudes. So, you know, maybe in those situations where you're high up, have a sandwich meal or something that you get a lot of that great nutrients and those fats, but you don't have to worry about that really, really hot water to make your meal.
2: Well, that's good. And I think people should just be aware of that. If you're going to take your freeze-dried food up to 12,000 feet, you can eat it there. It's going to be a little crunchy. But you can do it, you know. So, But that's a good advice there. So maybe just avoid the foods you have to cook when you're that high up.
0: Yeah, or another option too is if you do want to have a warm meal, but you don't want to, you know, you can't boil your water and you can't get it too hot. Another great option is to have something that's pre-cooked. So if you use a sausage that's already pre-cooked or you know, a rice that's pre-cooked, you can throw all these things together, add a few flavor packets or some way to bring some flavor to it, just stir it all together, and that way you're not using a lot of fuel and you're not having to bring it up to a high temperature. You're just warming it up.
2: Very cool. I want to go back to your four stages. Planning the okay. food for a for a trip. You, you said storage requirements, duration of the journey, the cooking options. What how are you going yep. to cook the food, and then personal style. But I want to pull that into some of the categories on your website. So you have okay. water sports. So what kinds of meals work with water sports versus some of these others? Okay.
0: Uh, for that one, let's talk about the storage requirements because, you know, you're on a boat, you have a cooler, most likely it's really, really hot. So you just kind of have to think of things that can melt with the water in the cooler. <laughs> so you don't want things that are just going to get everything mushy and crazy. You want durable foods that uh, last well, that you can eat in different situations on the water. Um, and of course, then you have the sun, you have the heat. So kind of take those things into consideration. <laughs>
2: You know, we interviewed uh, some river runners that do rafting, and that was one of the things that came out was that they can carry the weight, so holy cow, they'll carry the, the steak dinner and, and the fancy drinks and everything else because the boats can manage it, and so that totally changes your options.
0: Exactly. And that's kind of why I like to look at those four steps, because, you know, once you have an idea, and that's why I start with storage first, because really that lets me you know if I have refrigeration, how much space I have, and it really helps me narrow down my field of what foods are available for me.
2: So believe it or not, Michelle, we've already used up most of our time, but we love to close out the show with some stories that are inspirational or funny. Do you have anything like that that might be food related?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um You know, one of my first backpacking experiences when I was in the States is I went up to Conundrum Hot Springs in Colorado and I did not have a stove with me at the time. So I was trying to think of, you know, what's a different creative way to cook and have a nice hot meal without bringing a stove? And through one thought process or another, I came up with, you know what? Why don't I just use the hot spring? So I ended up going to the store. I went to Trader Joe's and they have these great pre-cooked rice packets and uh, pre-cooked curries that uh, it's like Indian style curries. So I grabbed a couple of those. We ran up to the hot spring and I used a rock, put the meal under a rock and just let it cook next to a hot vent. And it was the easiest cooking I've ever done in my life because I just got to sit in a hot spring and relax the whole time. And then sure enough, I had this great hot meal that came in a packet that all I had to do was just open up the packet, grab a spoon, dig in, and everybody around me was insanely jealous. It was
2: awesome. (laughs) Geothermal cooking. I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet.
0: Yep. Yep. That's so awesome. there's actually a, a lot of different things you can do with it. And you could try sous vide where you let the hot spring cook some meat for you. And then after it's really had a chance to marinate and cook, you could take that meat out of the bag, put it on a flame, just cook the outside and then you have a really nice roast. So mm, use good. whatever's available to you. You know, it doesn't just always have to be the traditional one way of cooking. Get creative. Have fun with it. Just use your environment.
2: That's awesome. Well, Michelle, tell our listeners again how they can find more information about all of this.
0: Absolutely. So you visit AdventureDiningGuide.com. You can also follow me on social media, Instagram, at AdventureDiningGuide. Check out Pinterest. There's tons of great links on my website for recipes, for videos. If you have any recipe that you'd like to share. I'm always looking for people's feedbacks. So please reach out, share your stories, share your recipes, and I'll feature them on my website.
2: Very cool. Well, Michelle, thank you for helping us to try to solve the problem of how to eat, especially when weight really matters in the wilderness. I like your ideas and I love all these different recipes on your website, AdventureDiningGuide.com. Good stuff. Thanks for your time.
0: Thank you guys so much. Happy trails and happy adventures.
2: Yeah. And as always, until the next show, get out there.
1: Have some fun first of all thank you so much for listening to the episode uh, secondly if you would like to get in touch you can leave us a voicemail at 812 mail pod you can also send us an email info at adventuresportspodcast.com. get a hold of us on Facebook Instagram contact us on the website like there's just a thousand ways to do it if you know somebody that would make a good guest for the show whether they're whether it's you or somebody you know with a really cool story or background or does an interesting sport, get in touch. We'd love to have them on. Also, if you'd like to be a patron, a.k.a. a supporter of the show, patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. You can sign up for as little as a buck a month. You can sign up for five bucks a month. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. If you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food on planet Earth... Go to peakrefuel.com and at checkout, use the code ASP20. So after all of this outdoor talk, if you're looking to plan your own getaway, head to backpacktribe.com and get ready for your next adventure. They have customized gear bundles and free shipping, and they'll be able to get you ready for any adventure that you want to tackle. Check them out, backpacktribe.com.